Chapter 4 The Forest Fire The Life Story of a Black Bear by H.P. Robinson This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Though we had come off so happily from our first encounter with man, Nonetheless, we had no desire to see him again. On the contrary, we determined to keep as far away from him as possible. For my part, I must confess that the thought of him were always with me, and every thought made the skin crawl up my back. At night, I dreamed of him. Dreamed that he was chasing me endlessly over the mountains. I would get away from him, and, thinking myself safe, crawl into a thicket to sleep. But before I could shut my eyes, he was on me again, and the dreadful thunder stick would speak, and showers of chips flew off the tree trunks all around me, and off I would have to go again, and all the time my foreleg was broken, like cinnamons, and I never dared to stop long enough to wash it in the streams. It seemed to me that the chase lasted for days and days, over hills and across valleys, and always, apparently, in a circle, because I never managed to get any distance away from home. Then, just as man was going to catch me, and the thunder stick was roaring, and the chips flying off the trees and bewildering showers about me, my mother would slap me and wake me up, because she could not sleep for the noise that I was making. And I was glad that she did. Nor was I the only one of the family who was nervous. Father and mother had come so changed that they were gruff and bad-tempered, and all the pleasure and light-heartedness seemed to have gone out of our long rambles. There was no more romping and rolling together down the hillsides. If Kawa and I grew noisy in our play, we were certain to be stopped with a Woof! Children, be quiet! The fear of man was always with us, and his presence seemed to pervade the whole of the mountains. Soon, however, a thing happened which, for a time at least, drove man and everything else out of our minds. We still lingered around the neighborhood of our home because I think we felt safer there, where we knew every inch of the hills and every bush and tree and stone. It had been hot for weeks, so that the earth was parched dry, and the streams had shrunk till, in places where torrents were pouring but a few weeks ago, there was now no more than a dribble of water going over the stones. During the day, we hardly went about at all, but from soon after sunrise to an hour or so before sunset, we kept in the shadows of the brushwood along the water's edge. One evening, the sun did not seem to be able to finish setting, but after it had gone down, the red glow still stayed in the sky to westward, and instead of it fading, it glowed visibly brighter as the night went on. All night, my father was uneasy, growling and grumbling to himself and continually sniffing the air to westward. 
But the atmosphere was stagnant and hot and dead all night, with not a breath of wind moving. When daylight came, the glow died out of the western sky, but in place of it, a heavy gray cloud hung over the further mountains and hid their tops from sight. We went to bed that morning, feeling very uncomfortable and restless, and by midday we were up again. And now we knew what the matter was. A breeze had sprung up from the west, and when I woke after a few hours sleep, sleep which had been one long nightmare of man and thundersticks and broken leg, the air was full of a new smell, very sharp and pungent. And not only was there the smell, but with the breeze, the cloud from the west had been rolling towards us, and the whole mountainside was covered with a thin haze, like a mist, only different from any mist that I had seen. And it was this haze that smelled so strongly. Instead of clearing away, as mist ought to do when the sun grows hot, this one became denser as the day went on half-veiling the sun itself, and we soon found that things, unusual things, were going on in the mountains. The birds were flying excitedly about, and the squirrels chattering, and everything was traveling from west to east, and on all sides we heard the same thing. The world's on fire! Quick! 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 screamed the squirrels as they raced along the ground, or jumped from tree to tree overhead. Fire! Fire! called the myrtle robin as it passed. Fire! shouted the blue jay. A coyote came limping by, yelping that the end of the world was at hand. Pumas passed, snarling and growling angrily, first at us, then over their shoulders at the smoke that rolled behind. Deers plunged up to us, stood for a minute, quivering with terror, and plunged on again into the brush. Overhead and along the ground was an almost constant stream of birds and animals, all hurrying in the same direction. Presently, there came along another family of bears, the parents and two cubs, just about the size of Kawa and myself, the cubs whimpering and whining as they ran. The father bear asked my father if we were going too, but my father thought not. He was older and bigger than the other bear, had seen a forest fire when he was a cub, and his father then had saved them by taking to the water. If a strong wind gets up, he said, you cannot escape by running away from the fire, because it will travel faster than you. It may drive you before it for days until you are worn out, and then there's no knowing where it will drive you. It may drive you unexpectedly. Straight into man. I shall try the water. The others listened to what he had to say, but they were too frightened to pay much attention and soon went on again, leaving us to face the fire. And I confessed that I wished that Father would let us go too. Meanwhile, the smoke had been growing thicker and thicker. It made eyes and throats smart. And poor little Kawa was crying with discomfort and terror. Before sunset, the air was so thick that we could not see a hundred yards in any direction. 
and as the twilight deepened, the whole western half of the sky, from north to south, and almost overhead, seemed to flame. Now, too, we could hear the roaring of the fire in the distance, like the noise the wind makes in the pine trees before a thunderstorm. Then my father began to move, not away from the fire, however, but down the stream, and the stream ran almost due west, straight towards it. What a terrible trip that was! The fire was, of course, much farther away than it looked. The smoke had been carried with the wind many miles ahead of the fire itself, and we could not yet see the flames, but only the awful glare in the sky. But in my experience, I thought it was close upon us, and with the dreadful roaring growing louder and louder in my ears, every minute was agony. But my father and mother went steadily on, and there was nothing to do but to follow them. Sometimes we left the stream for a little to make a shortcut, but we soon came back to it, and for the most part we kept in the middle of the water, or waiting along by the bank where it was deep. All the time the noise of the roaring of the flames grew louder and the light in the sky brighter, until, as we went forward, everything in front of us looked black against it, and if we looked behind us, everything was glowing even in the haze of smoke, as if in strong red sunshine. Now, too, at intervals, the gusts of wind came, stifling hot and laden with the breath of the fire itself, and we were glad to plunge our faces into the cool water until the gusts went by. At last, we reached our pool above the beaver dam, and here, feeling his way cautiously, well out into the middle, till he found a place where it was just deep enough for Kawa and me to be able to lift our heads above the water, father stopped. By this time, the air was so hot that it was hard to breathe without dipping one's mouth constantly in the water, and for the roaring of the flames, I could not hear Kawa whimpering by my side, or the rush of the stream below the dam and we soon found that we were not alone in the pool. My friend the kingfisher was not there, but close beside us were old Grey Wolf and his wife, and as I remembered that Grey Wolf was considered the wisest animal in the mountains, I began to feel more comfortable and glad that we had not run away with the others. The beavers, what a lot of them there were, were in a state of great excitement climbing out onto the top of the dam and slapping the logs and the water with their tails and plunging into the water only to climb out again only to climb out again and plunge into it once more once a small herd of deer seven or eight of them came rushing out of the water evidently intending to stay there but their courage failed them whether it was the proximity of gray wolf or whether it was mere nervousness i do not know but after they had settled down in the water, one of them was suddenly panic-stricken and plunged for the bank and off into the woods, followed by all the rest. When we reached the pool, there was still one ridge or spur of the mountain between us and the fire, making a black wall in front of us, above which was nothing but a furnace of swirling smoke and red-hot air. 
It seemed as if we waited a long time for the flames to top that wall because, I suppose, they traveled slowly down in the valley, where they did not get the full force of the wind. Then we saw the sky just above the top of the wall, glowing brighter from red to yellow. Then came a few scattered, tossing bits of flame against the glow, and the swirling smoke, and then with one roar, it was upon us. In an instant, the whole line of the mountain ridge was a mass of flame. The noise redoubled till it was almost deafening, and as the wind now caught it, the fire lipped from tree to tree, not pausing at one before it swallowed the next, but at one steady rush, without check or interruption, it swept over the hilltop and down the nearer slope, and instantaneously, it seemed, we were in the middle of it. I remember recalling then that my father had said to the other bears about not being able to run away from the fire if the wind were blowing strongly. Had we not been out in the middle of the pool, we must have perished. The fire was on both sides of the stream. Indeed, as we learned later, it reached for many miles on both sides, and where there was only the usual width of water, the flames joined hands across it and swept up the stream in one solid wall. Where we were was the whole width of the pool, while besides, the beavers had cut down the larger trees immediately near the water, so there was less for the fire to feed on. But even so, I did not believe that we could come through alive. It was impossible to open my eyes above water, and the hot air scorched my throat. There was nothing for it but to keep my head under water and hold my breath as long as I could, then put my nose out just enough to breathe once and plunge it in again. How long that went on I do not know, but it seemed to me ages, though the worst of it can only have lasted for minutes. But at the edge of those minutes, all the water in that huge pool was hot. I saw my father raising his head and shoulders slowly out of the water and beginning to look about him. That gave me courage, and I did the same. The first thing that I realized was that the roaring was less loud, and then, though it was still almost intolerably hot, I found that it was possible to keep one's head in the open air and one's eyes open. Looking back, I saw that the line of flame had already swept far away and was even now surmounting the top of the next high ridge. And it was, I knew, at that moment devouring the familiar cedars by our home, just as it had devoured the trees on either side of the beaver's pool. On all side of us, Bigger trees were still in flames, and from everywhere thick white smoke was rising. And all over the mountainside, right down to the water's edge, there was not one green leaf or twig. Everything was black. The brushwood was completely gone. The trees were no more than bare trunks, some of them still partially wreathed in flames. The whole earth was black, and from every side rose columns and jets and streams of smoke. It seemed incredible that such a large change could have been wrought so instantaneously.
It was awful. In just a few minutes, what had been a mountainside clothed in splendid trees, making one dense shield of green, sloping down to the bottomland by the stream, with its thickets of undergrowth and all the long, cool, green herbage by the water, had been swept away, and in its place was only a black and smoking wilderness. And what we saw before our eyes was the same for miles and miles to the north and south of us. For a hundred miles to the west, from which the fire had come, and every few minutes, as long as the wind held, carried desolation another mile to eastward. And what of all the living things that had died? Had the animals and birds that had passed us early in the day escaped? The deer which had fled from the pole at the last moment, they, I knew, must have been overtaken in that first terrible rush of the flames. And I wondered what the chances were that the bears who had declined to stay with us, the squirrels, the coyote, the pumas, and the hosts of birds that had been hurrying eastward all day would be able to keep moving long enough to save themselves. And what of all the insects and smaller things that must be perishing by millions every minute? I do not know whether I was more frightened at the thought of what we had escaped or grateful to my father for the course that he had taken. It is improbable that I thought all this at the time, but I know that I was dreadfully frightened. And it makes me laugh now to think what a long time it was before we could persuade Kawa to put her head above water and look about her. Our eyes and throats were horribly sore, but otherwise none of us was hurt. But though we were still alive, life did not look very bright for us. Where would we go? That was the first question. And what should we find to eat in all this smoking wilderness? While we sat in the middle of the pool wondering what we could do or whether it would be safe to do anything, we saw Grey Wolf starting to go away. He climbed out onto the bank while his wife sat in the water and watched him. He got out safely and then put his nose to snuff at the ground. The instant his nose touched the earth, he gave a yelp and plunged back into the water again. He had burnt the tip of his nose, for the ground was baking hot. And as we soon discovered for ourselves, when we stepped out onto the shore, our feet were so wet that we did not feel the heat, but in a few seconds they began to dry. And then the sooner we scrambled back into the water again, the better. How long it would have taken the earth to cool again, I do not know. It was covered in a layer of burned stuff, ashes and charred wood, which everywhere continued smoldering underneath. And all through the morning of the next day, little spirals of smoke were rising from the ground in every direction. Fortunately, at midday came a thunderstorm which lasted well on towards evening, and when the rain stopped, the ground had ceased smoking. Many of the trees still smoldered and burned inside. Sometimes the flame would eat its way out again to the surface, so that the tree would go on burning in the middle of the wet forest until it was consumed, and for days afterwards, 
on scratching away the stuff on the surface, we would come to a layer of half-burned sticks that was still too hot to touch, and nothing more desolate than the landscape can be imagined. Wherever we looked, there was not a speck of green to be seen, nothing but blackness. The earth everywhere was black, and out of it in long rows in every direction stood up the black trees. In many cases, only the branches were burnt, leaving the whole straight shaft of the trunk going up like a mast into the sky. In others, the trees were destroyed, trunk and all, to within a foot or two of the ground, leaving nothing but a ragged and charred stump standing. Sometimes, the fire had eaten through the tree halfway up, so that the top had broken off, and what remained was only a column, ten, twenty, or thirty feet high. And everything was black, 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 like ourselves. We, of course, kept to the stream. There, along the edges, we found food. For the rushes and grass and plants of all kinds had burned to the waterline, but below that the stems and roots remained fresh and good but it was impossible to avoid getting the black dust into one's nose and mouth, and our throats and nostrils were still full of the smell of the smoke. No amount of water could wash it out. The effect of the thunderstorm soon passed off, and by the next day everything was as dry as ever, and the least puff of wind filled the air with clouds of black powder, which made us sneeze, and getting it into our eyes kept them red and sore. I do not think that in all my life I have spent such a miserable time as those days while we were trying to escape from the region of the fire. Of course, we did not know that there was any escape. Perhaps the whole world had burned, but my father was sure that we could get out of it some time or other if we only kept straight on, and keep on we did, hardly ever leaving the water, but traveling on and on and up the stream as it got smaller and smaller. Until, finally, there was no stream at all, but only a spring bubbling out of the mountainside. So we crossed over the burnt ground until we came to the beginning of another stream on the other side, and followed that down just as we had followed the first one up. And perhaps the most dreadful thing all the time was the utter silence of the woods. As a rule, both day and night, they were full of the noises of other animals and birds. But now there is not a sound in all the mountains. We seem to be the only living things left. The stream which we now followed was that on which the men, whom we only had seen camping, and presently we came to the place where they had been. The chopped log house was full of ashes and half-burnt wood. About the ruins, we found all sorts of curious things that were new to us. Among them, things which I know now were kettles and frying pans, and we came upon lumps of their food, but it was all too much covered with the black powder to be eatable. There we stayed for the best part of a day, and then we went on without having seen a sign of man himself, wondering. What had become of him? We had no cause to love him, but I remember hoping that he had not been burned. And the thought that even man himself had been as helpless as we 
made it all seem more terrible and hopeless. Seven or eight days had passed since the fire, when, the day after we passed the place where men had lived, we came to a beaver dam across the stream, and the beavers told us that, some hours before the fire reached there, they had seen men hurrying downstream, but they did not know whether they had succeeded in escaping or not. And now other life began to reappear. We met badgers and woodchucks and rats which had taken refuge in their holes and had at first been unable to force their way out again through the mass of burnt stuff which covered the ground and choked up their burrows. The air, too, began to be full of insects which had been safe underground or in the heart of trees and were now hatching out. And then we met birds, woodpeckers first and afterwards jays, which were working back into the burnt district, and from them, it was that we first learned for certain that it was only a burnt district, and that there was part of the world which had escaped. So we pushed on until, one morning, when daylight came, we saw in the distance a hilltop on which the trees still stood, with all their leaves unconsumed. And how good and cool it looked! We did not stop to sleep, but traveled on all the way through, going as fast as we could along the rocky edges of the stream, which was now almost wide enough to be a river, when suddenly we heard strange noises ahead of us, and we knew what the noises were, and that they meant man again. Men were coming toward us along the bank of the stream, so we had to leave it and hurry into the woods. There, though there was no shelter but the burnt tree stumps, we were safe. For everything around us was of the same color as ourselves, and all we had to do was squat perfectly still, and it was possible, even for us, at a little distance, to distinguish each other from burnt tree stumps. So we sat and watched the men pass. There were five of them, each carrying a bundle nearly as big as himself on his back, and they laughed and talked noisily as they passed, without suspicion that four bears were looking at them from less than a hundred yards away. As soon as they had passed, we went on again, and before evening we came to places where the trees were only partly burned. Here and there one had escaped altogether. Then, close by the stream, patch of willows was as green and fresh as if there had been no fire, and at last we had left the burnt country behind us. How good it was, the smell of the dry pine needles and the good soft brown earth underneath, and the delight of the taste of food that was once more free from smoke, and the glory of that first roll in the green grass among the fresh, greasy undergrowth by the water. That next day we slept really slept for the first time since the night in the beaver's pool. End of chapter 4